0: And of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, of man. Father Brendan Kilcoyne coming to you again with the Brendan option from Athan Rye, courtesy of Immaculata Productions, bringing you Catholic commentary. Do check out our video on vocations with Father Gerard Quirk, and please do hit the button if you like what you hear on this episode or any other. Please do subscribe because we're only starting out, we're a little Catholic startup. And if you can give us the old kiss of life there, you know, give us a bit of the CPR, it would be huge help. I don't know whether any of you remember the Ed Sullivan show. It's a long time ago now. It was, I suppose, regarded as one of the great classic television shows and probably some would say the last of the greats. It ran from about the late 40s to the early 70s, rounder about, over 20 years dominating the 50s and 60s so you're talking about early television from early television into adolescent television let's put it that way and it looks very grainy now and whatever but for years and years Ed Sullivan really could make an act if they got onto the Ed Sullivan show and they they had their act together they could break open the American market if they were foreigners or indeed if they were American did a huge audience he was revered he was successful in many things although one American once I remember describing him to me uh, rather dismissively as as somebody who had no talent himself except the talent to see talent in others but that's quite a lot of talent if you can see the talent in others and put it into into business terms and into administrative terms and run a show for that long that's quite a talent it is true that Sullivan himself if you look at him now I mean, if you look at some of that old television stuff, like let's say look at Bishop Fulton Sheen. Sheen's a natural and he moves fluidly and, and he's enjoying himself. I know he, he spent a lot of time preparing his work, but he's enjoying himself and you can tell it. He's good at it and he's enjoying it. Sullivan really, I wouldn't have thought of him as a man made for television. He looked more like small town businessman who just happened to wander onto the set. There's nothing wrong with that, but he just didn't look like a, a television personality. But fair enough, they were early days. Now, if you go to the gospel today, you may be asking at this stage, why is he going on and on about Ed Sullivan? Well, what interests me in Ed Sullivan, I'm not aware that he was a singer or a dancer or a musician, but he fathered, he engendered many musical acts. You could say that. That's no small thing to be, if I may put it crudely, to be the sire of a champion. That's what he often did. Now go to the Gospel today, and there you meet John the Baptist, who is almost the exact opposite. John the Baptist is no businessman, but he's an intensely, quite obviously, an intensely magnetic personality. Charismatic. His lineage is impeccable. He was of priestly stock. The parents, they were of the lines of Abijah and Aaron. He's related to Jesus, and the countryside is alive with talk of him. You you just look at the Gospel there, and the Gospel tells you not just that the people from the countryside were flocking to him. People from the countryside were very devout. But they were coming out of Jerusalem to him. Now that's interesting, because Jerusalem was a very sophisticated city. And it was in some ways strange to say a somewhat godless city, and always had been if you read the Prophets. You remember what our Lord says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, city who stoned the Prophets and they're flocking out to him. So the esthetes, the rich, the jeunesse d'orée, the bright young things, the beautiful people are all flocking out to him instead of living the dolce vita in Jerusalem. Now it reminds me of the story told by Thomas Merton in The Waters of Silo, his history of the Trappist order, how after the foundation of La Trappe, which gives its name to the Trappist order, it was a strict, 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 strict reformation of the Cistercian order by the Abbé de Rance, himself of an incredibly wealthy French aristocrat, threw the whole thing up, took vows, took the meanest and poorest of the abbeys that the family owned in the middle of a swamp in a place called La Trappe, and he turned it into a world-famous name. And the rich and famous of the liaison dangereuse the polished aristocrats pomaded and coiffed in their impeccable velvet waistcoats and silk jackets and the ladies in their magnificent wigs and dresses they came out in carriages from paris to visit this abbey which was notoriously severe the worst criminals in france joined them one particularly corrupt And ruthless and notorious government officials showed up in the middle of a thunderstorm in the middle of the night, banging frantically on the front door of the abbey, begging to be let in to save him from hell. And apparently drove the monks crazy by groaning and crying all night over his sins for years to come. And they flocked out to see these John the Baptists, in a sense, who were out in the the wilderness. So I'm just saying in the history of the church... The charism of John the Baptist comes back again and again. He had the charism of the prophets. He was of the priestly line, but he he came in off the desert clad in camel skin, eating locusts and wild honey. He had the charism of the prophets uh, very much. He comes in to proclaim the kingdom. Repent, believe the good news. John could have had it all. It wouldn't be the first time an acolyte stabbed the high priest in the back. It wouldn't be the first time the quiet, dutiful servant of a great man laced his wine with arsenic to take over the job himself. John could have had it all. He could have had Jesus quietly murdered if he wouldn't come in with him, and he could have ended up a king, but no. It is absolutely incredible that John, with all of his gifts, uses all of his persuasive power and the command of his personality not to convince the people that he was the one. If you want to see somebody doing that demonically, it was Hitler. You can nearly see him doing it on screen. You can see him willing it. Not to convince the people that he was the one, but to convince them that he was not the one. And that there was one coming, so superior to him, that he wasn't fit to undo the strap of his sandals. And keep in mind that that's menial work for a servant or a slave. Undoing the strap of the master's sandals and taking them off before washing his feet after a long day on the road or out in the fields. I am not fit to undo The strap of his sandals. That's what he said about the one who was coming. John's integrity shines like the sun. It is a beautiful moment where he firmly obeys God. And remember, he is not Jesus who is perfect. John is not perfect. But his obedience is heroic. His sanctity is heroic. He fulfills his role. How many of us are willing to do that? How many of us are willing to be the drummer boy? How many of us are willing to say, call me Ed? Okay, now I know Ed Sullivan probably made a fortune, but in a sense, it couldn't have been easy at times to know that a lot of these people had done so well because of him, you know? Well, that'd be a good thing in some ways, maybe not in others. John is a tremendous example to us. I suppose really what I want to suggest to you in this talk is that in this second week of Advent, Newman asked that God would make him A clearer and clearer window. So transparent, so translucent, so perfectly clear that God's light would shine through the window and people would see only God and not him. That's what Newman asked for. Now, I would suggest to you that that is what John is achieving and that that is what we should be trying to achieve. But that's not an easy thing to do. That's not an easy thing to do. John had to go out into the desert and eat locusts and wild honey and dress in filthy bits of camel skin in order to reach that level of spiritual purity. How many of us are genuinely capable of that? How many of us are really capable of selflessness? It's a lot to ask. You think of it, we're always committing to things and then we're always cutting deals. We're always drawing back. Well, the best I can say to you is that some, where was it, 28 years ago, I became a priest. And I've spent the time since wheedling and haggling and pulling back and giving and taking back a bit of what I've given. Anytime now, and I I think the more and more I get older as a priest, when I carry the Lord out to the altar for adoration, at the Epiclesis in the Mass, when I put my hands over the host and the wine, I call God down on the altar. And then I lift up God above the people. And if I were to pray at that time, and I do pray at that time, I'd be telling God, get as decent a foothold as he could standing on a dunghill because I feel so unworthy holding him up. And that's not false modesty. And I'm not trying to do a cut-price bargain basement effort at Trays of Lisieux. That's the honest truth. That didn't come to me easily. That did not come to me easily. It has come with age. It has come with a little bit of suffering. It has come with, with the remorse that time wasted and wrong. You know, just handling things badly. It has come hard to me. But still, it's gold. Any bit of wisdom is pure gold. Now, I'm just suggesting to you, not that you become a saint overnight. And I won't even use the word saint. Some of these words can be very off-putting because they make the whole thing seem absolutely unattainable. You know, I remember the, the old, the elders used to say to us when we were little, when they didn't want us hanging around in bad company, they'd say dirt sticks, you know. Lie down with dogs, get up with fleas. Don't hang about with dangerous people. Don't hang about with disreputable people. It'll it'll rub off on you. Show me your friends, I'll tell you who you are. That kind of thing. I know you by your friends. I would suggest to you that if you're going to serve the Lord, if you want to hold the Lord up for people, if you want to proclaim the presence of the kingdom and the way you live and what you do, I would suggest that a very good way of starting on that would be to spend time in good company. And I'm going to suggest to you the best possible company you could be in. I would suggest that you start spending time at adoration. And even if it's not in front of the exposed blessed sacrament, still time in front of the tabernacle I regard as adoration. It may not be in the classical sense, but it is adoration. I strongly would suggest that. Although don't dismiss the sensual aspect of it. There is something about actually seeing the Lord, seeing the host. Now, if you're going to serve God and you're not spending time in adoration, you're cheating yourself and you're going to find the road 20 times harder than you should be. I remember spiritual advisors and stuff years ago, and they could be so snotty like they sounded like they knew it all. They didn't know you listened to them. And they'd say, I don't know how you can possibly hope to be a priest if you're not spending time in adoration. And you'd feel like saying back to them, Well, I was banking on being a fairly bad one. Uh, No, look, I know maybe a few of you are there and you're not pleased with what I've just said, but I I mean it. This is a hard road and you really want to try to communicate with people and not be looking down your snout at them. Because that's not going to help anyone. No student ever learned from a teacher who despised them. They might learn from a teacher of whom they're a bit afraid. don't know how much you learn from somebody you're terrified of. But you learn from somebody of whom you're a little bit afraid. But if the teacher despises you and regards you as a waster, I don't know how you can learn from someone who hurts you so much. Oh, I I don't know how. I don't know how you can call yourself a Catholic if you're not praying so much every day. Well, could you call yourself a bad Catholic? A bit of a Catholic? A sort of a partly banjaxed, half-knackered Catholic? Could you call yourself that? I mean, that would be a start. I'm not defending it. I'm just saying, let's get down off our high horses and talk turkey. How do we start somehow breaking out of the rut we're in of mediocrity and uh, maybe worse how do we break out of it i would suggest you stop putting names on it, stop thinking about it stop thinking about it stop telling yourself oh i'm supposed to be a saint i'll never be a saint stop using the word saint stop using the word religion stop using the word god you just stop blathering stop living this in your head there's a time for that we're a very intellectual religion there's a time for just doing it from the heart Go into your heart. The Eastern Orthodox are very critical of us for this, I believe. They feel that the Western Church, well, they regard us as the great whore of Babylon and, and the Antichrist and all the rest of it, so I, fair enough. Obviously, that's not very positive, so <laughs> it's, it's a bit much to expect that they, that they want us some fairly firm ideas on how we got there. But they do sometimes, I think, have a point, and they say, you depend too much on human reason. The West has gone too much with human reason. Pray more. Love more. Trust your heart more. Do you know that there might be a point there? I do believe that there might have a point there. And so, now don't get me wrong. You have a head as well as a heart and you're supposed to use both. But I'm just saying we're a bit in danger of despising our hearts. Go in front of the Blessed Sacrament. Start spending time with God. I like to read a little bit and I always found that if you mix with well-read people, it rubs off. You know, they're always going on about the latest book they've read or film they've seen or something and next thing you start reading a book or two because they've recommended it i had a few colleagues years ago when i was teaching and they, i found those friendships were very very productive for me on a whole load of different levels like because they were always talking about the last book they'd read and not pretentiously like that they were interested in life and interested in ideas well, i already was those things but i found it strengthened me in it and it rubbed off so do you not think that if you spent a bit of time with the blessed sacrament that might rub off so you might say back to me, oh, well, I just go in and I fall asleep. Well, fine, as long as you don't go in with the intention of falling asleep. Because, like, it's the church, and if you look up over the door, you won't see a sign saying, comfortable hotel, come in. Just go to sleep, and we'll have your din ready for you when we wake up. But I mean, if you go in to pray and you fall asleep, and come up, what, what, what are we running here, a torture chamber? Some chamber of horrors? Like, what's the big deal if you fall asleep? You wake up and start praying again. No, but just go in. Just spend a bit of time with him. Just sit there looking at him. You know, just gimp away at him there for a while from the seat. I don't see the problem. You're making this too posh. You're making it too fancy. And you're not doing it. You're not doing it because you're overthinking the whole thing. You just get in there and stop whinging. Just get in and sit down and and just take it easy in his presence. You know, and stop being so jumpy. Things have to be happening all the time. They don't have to be happening all the time. Things will happen in his time. Funny thing about the spiritual life, and here I believe I'm backed up by theologians and mystics. Funny thing about the spiritual life, there's a very active side to it, in that it's like faith and good works. You know, you do have to get up if you're proverbial and do something. But there's also a very passive side to it, in that really, at the end, only God can give you a spiritual life. It stands to reason, doesn't it? If you fall in love with somebody, and they don't love you back, well, that's a crush, right? But it's not a relationship, because they don't love you back. I'm sorry, you're going to cry now? They don't love you back. What are we going to do? (sighs) You need to be there. You need to be spending time with him. He does love you. But you don't know that. You don't feel it. You need to be spending time with him. John the Baptist has a lot to teach us, but not if we ignore the fact that he came in off the desert. Clad in camel skin and eating locusts and wild honey. When I went to the Holy Land, I thought I could visualize the desert. I was very arrogant. The nearest i'd ever come to the desert well i don't know if i'd ever come near to it i suppose the beach down at home yeah there's a lot of sand there that's about it and when i was giving sermons i used to think i was oh so clever because i'd say well when you think of jesus going out to the desert to pray think of it like going up the mountain or out the bog now it wasn't a bad shot okay a bit tacky maybe but it wasn't a bad shot it was a reasonable stab at it you know not very original but fair enough until i saw the desert On the way up, is it from the Dead Sea to Jerusalem? There's nothing out there. I mean it. There is absolutely nothing going on out there. There's nothing. It's endless sand and nothing else. There's nothing growing, nothing. We don't know what a wilderness is. We simply don't know. If you're in the most remote valley in Ireland, there are very few in which you won't see one light maybe at night. There is nothing out there. So when John came in off the desert, he had gone out there where there is nothing but the spiritual combat. The Desert Fathers imitated him and Jesus. Jesus was to do the same thing. He went out there to meet God and face the devil. There's nothing else to do out there. Now you're going to have to build a little bit of this into your life. So how about if you just took a minute a week, a few minutes a week, a few minutes, a minute like, a few minutes a week, Five minutes. Five minutes is reasonable. So you go into the church and you would bless yourself with holy water, but you can't because there's none there. COVID. You bless yourself. You genuflect. You get into the seat. You can sit or you can kneel. Don't worry about it. And you just stay there in front of the blessed sacrament for five minutes. And then you get out, you genuflect, you cross yourself and you leave. Is that rocket science? I mean, what, do you need in night classes? I would say that's pretty manageable. I really don't see the challenge here. You know, that's not so much the desert. That's a, a cup of sand. I mean, I wouldn't even bother bringing a bucket and a spade to that. And it's a start. Why am I going on about this? I'm, because John the Baptist came to tell us that Jesus was coming and that he wasn't Jesus. And Jesus has come. And Jesus is present on the altar physically in every Mass. And he is in the tabernacle and he's in the monstrance in front of you. And you're absolutely crazy if you try to follow Jesus and don't spend any time with him. The disciples were always with him. He spent a disproportionate amount of the three years of his public ministry with those men. You're going to have to start spending some time with him. Another way you spend time with him is in the scriptures. And you're saying, oh, well, you know, I'll read the Gospels because Jesus is there. No, no, no. My apologies to our Jewish brothers and sisters, but Jesus is present from Genesis to Apocalypse, not just in the Gospels. The Gospels have their own very particular significance. Some people will say to you, oh, well, the, really the, the Old Testament was abrogated and it really isn't relevant anymore. That's heresy, and it's not. The Old Testament foretells him and waits for him, and it's the action of God for his people, the calling of the children of Israel from among the nations in preparation for that one Jew, Yeshua, the man from the back of beyond From Nazareth Apparently there's a little play on the word there I think it's Isaiah who says uh, He'll be a Nazar A Nazar A shoot of Jesse A shoot, a Nazar It's a little play, Nazareth There may be some play there There may be some play There's also a little play on the idea of the Nazarite as well I think, I think John was a Nazarite Nazarites were They were very devout Jews Really devout Jews Okay, I've just thrown that stuff out I think you should be spending time with them. I just do not understand why you should be cheating yourself of it. I understand how you could be bored in it. I understand how your head could cave in at the thought of going down. I never feel like going to adoration, and I always find it hard to leave. That's the best I can say to you. I love it when I'm there. But I I never particularly feel like going down to it. You go down, and then you're there with him. That would be my message to you. Be very careful of this business of... Oh, but it's, you know, it's just a way for, if, only, if I could see Jesus. Yeah, if you could see Jesus. Quite a few people could see Jesus and, and they crucified him. Or they walked away from him or they spat in his face and slapped him across the face. They betrayed him. Yeah, so don't start that. Some of them walked away from having seen the miracles. Never mind having met him and drank tea with him. They saw the miracles and walked away from him. So be careful of that argument. Peter, Julian, I married the great apostle of adoration. He said, won't see him. He said, the Jews became idolaters at the foot of a flaming Sinai. The apostles talk gibberish on Mount Tabor. You can be looking at Jesus and still make a gummy yourself. You could be given everything by God and still betray him. Didn't Judas have three years with him? So if you're going to let the accidents, the appearance of bread, dissuade you against the belief and tradition of the church and the testimony of the scriptures i can't stop you and i'm not saying by the way be with them that to be with them is a guarantee you'll persevere like i said you could crucify him but there is no way forward without being with them and so this second week of advent now I, i really i really want you to think positively about that John the Baptist is, he's doing an Ed Sullivan on it, except he's not making a fortune out of it. In fact, he got beheaded for it. He's showing us the Lord. He's proclaiming the Lord. Advent is the time of coming. Adventus, it's an arrival. Adventum. So we should really, really be concentrating in Advent, I feel, on being in the presence of the Lord. Now, could I just share a little bit with you about just what I'm reading at the moment? I I like to do this because it makes me feel very intellectual. But actually, I have just finished and thoroughly enjoyed a second book by an author that I've mentioned a lot. And he inspired in a backhanded way, or the title of these modest little podcasts is a backhanded compliment to him, The Brendan Option, because he's the author of The Benedict Option. Rod Dreher, much talked about. And he's just come out with a second book, Live Not By Lies which is a quotation from the great Russian writer and Orthodox Catholic Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Live not by lies. You're spending time with the Lord. How do you now follow John the Baptist? How do you now start showing that the Lord has come in your life? Dreer, in his book, he spends a lot of the book talking about how Catholics survived in the communist countries, where they were living constantly with lies. And tempted to tell them. And where the price was so high for saying some things and not saying others that most people were just making their deals. And what he is interested in is those remarkable people who wouldn't. Now they didn't go looking for martyrdom. And Dreyer emphasizes this in his right. People going looking for martyrdom often it just means they're a young men. Young men are always trying to get themselves killed, so you can't be sure if it's not going at 200 miles an hour down the road because they think they'll never die, it's testosterone, and I really wouldn't trust it. Very impressive, you know. Look, Mammy, no hands. Look, Mammy, no teeth. No, don't, don't confuse that. The Irish word for that is gásgeacht. It's a great word, gásgeacht, which literally means uh, a Goshka is a warrior. It's like a haka. It's a warrior beating his chest and making rude signs at the opposition. But gashgeacht isn't really useful here Because in a communist country would have got you shot Or just put you in the gulag These people had to survive And so on the one hand they decided that they Like Solzhenitsyn, they would not live by lies They would not listen to the lies They would not tell lies But on the other hand they had to deal with the fact That the liars and the masters of the lie would wipe them out if they got them. So they had to walk an incredibly dangerous tightrope, not only politically, not only in real terms of life, but also morally and spiritually. Because in fighting a lying regime, you could become more of a monster than the regime. Just a better liar. Propaganda breeds counter-propaganda. And Dreer is very inspired by Solzhenitsyn, who was in the Gulag, he was a young army officer, He made some comments about Stalin and a letter to a friend. I think the friend shopped him, ratted on. And he got, I think, 10 years in the Gulag. And if you see photographs of Solzhenitsyn before and after, he was like an old man when he came out of it, from hunger and bad treatment. The Gulag was the equivalent of the German concentration camps in Stalin's Russia. They weren't extermination camps on paper, but they functioned as that in some way, because people were killed in huge numbers by pure hardship. And he decided that the way he would start to rebel was to stop telling lies. He would not lie. He would not call himself a communist when he wasn't a communist. He would not lie. And he kept doing it. And he wrote the Gulag Archipelago, which is a tremendous work, which effectively, the printing of that work, effectively, and along with the novel One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, it probably helped to bring down the Soviet regime, eventually. It was absolutely devastating to them, was the whole life in the prison camps, which dotted the Soviet Union. There were millions in them at one stage under Stalin. Live not by lies. And Dreher is very exercised by that, by Catholics in Czechoslovakia, for instance. Roger Scruton, the British philosopher, did huge work with these underground, Scruton even helped set up an underground university to combat what was going on in Czechoslovakia, which was the most ruthless atheistic regime. And uh, this university was granting degrees. John Paul II under the Nazis, with a a group of his friends, they were meeting regularly and they were just putting on Polish plays. They were putting on plays about Polish history or Polish classics or discussing classics of Polish literature because the Nazis were trying to wipe out Polish culture. And that was their way of resisting. And actually, I think the atheistic philosopher, the existential philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, In France, at the same time, under the Nazis, I think did similar things. Just to try to somehow keep the life of the mind, of honesty, to keep it alive somewhere. One of the groups that Dreher was in, this is how they lived John the Baptist, charism. One of the groups that Dreher was in touch with, they had a copier. I think it was a copier. I think it was top of the range. It was about 1984. German. It was taken apart in bits and smuggled in. By a whole number of people and then an expert had to be smuggled in to assemble it in order to hide it they had a trap door in a cellar that led down vertically and then across and then up under the wall of the next door house into a secret room which couldn't be found from the outside or a search of the house and the room you could hardly stand up in it and the only thing in the room apparently was the copier and that was where they used to copy the stuff that was secretly circulated. Whole books were copied and secretly circulated. Live not by lies. Now I'm telling you in the situation we're in, we're going to have to be John the Baptist and a good few of us are probably going to lose our heads. Except nowadays they don't do it that quickly. It's just in Ireland it's the death of a thousand small cuts. You know, they just let you bleed to death for a hundred years. Like. God forbid you get a quick exit. Most of the media are singing from one sheet. They've long ago abandoned any claim to be real journalists. They're basically, they're propagandists. Very well-educated propagandists. It's the same in America. It's the same throughout the West. And we'll gradually be outlawed. We'll be outlawed because we say that we have the truth. We'll be outlawed maybe because we say, because we have to say that while there is truth in other religions, they do not have all of the truth. And some of them have relatively little of it. And others have a lot of it but that the entirety of the truth subsists within the Catholic Church as the council defined it. We have the entirety of the truth. We have what eluded Einstein, the entirety of the truth. I'm not saying we understand it. I'm just saying we have it. And that's not going to go down too well. And other things, there are a whole load of things now, like, for instance, people having operations to change their sex. I won't say gender, because that's quite a complicated discussion, and an interesting discussion, actually. I'm sorry, but we regard such operations. I'm not saying this to offend anyone. We regard such operations as willful mutilation. And we particularly regard them with horror, where they're being done in some countries on children without parental consent. And even with parental consent, they would still be wicked in our view. Now, I don't know what else to say to you about this. And I'm not sowing hatred. If that's sowing hatred, then we have killed the public square. It is impossible to conduct rational discussion about crucial and intimate matters. The price of democracy is that everyone grows a thick skin because it's not enough just to say, oh, that's my identity. I'm sorry. There's going to have to be rather more of a discussion and not everyone will agree with you. Because this is another problem, is that we have a completely different anthropology because we don't believe that there's such a thing as an identity that proceeds solely from the internal, from inside the person. But identity is also partly formed by the interaction with others. Because we are naturally social. We depended for nine months completely on the body of another. Ay, ay, ay. You could go on about this forever. I'm, I'm telling you, where was it in Greece? Didn't, I remember when Greece came out. I think I was in about fourth year in school because everyone was singing the numbers in, in school. Uh, I couldn't sing. There was a phrase, You're cruising for a bruising. Let me tell you, Catholics are cruising for a bruising, and we are going to get it. We are going to get, as we say in the Irish countryside, which is an Irish phrase that nobody really understands, but it means you're going to get walloped. We are going to get it sooner or later. And we are going to have to have rooms that are reached at the end of tunnels, maybe not literally, but in our minds and among ourselves, we are going to have to construct a subculture that is vowed to live not by lies. And that subculture will be constituted of broken and sinful people who are gathered together, not because they despise their fellow man, but because they love their fellow man and are trying to work out ways to be allowed by their fellow man to help their fellow man, one of which would be to tell the truth. I leave that there. I'm not not going to rant on and on about it, but I'm telling you, if you have a couple of sheds out the back, uh, I, I wouldn't be knocking them just yet. We might need them. We're going to need places to meet because we don't know what's coming down the line. I do recommend Dreher's book to you, Live Not by Lies. It's available on Kindle as well, actually, or download, you know, the usual. And uh, it's an easy read and a most enjoyable one. And what I like most about Rod Dreher is that he has got me reading other books. The books he reads are very interesting. So it was he who introduced me to Sigmund Bauman, the sociologist, with liquid modernity, from which we took the image of the party, the Brendan option. One of the authors who seems to have really inspired him, and I'll I'll be talking about her more, in this book is Hannah Arendt, the Jewish author. Hannah Arendt, who wrote a lot about totalitarianism and uh, the whole thing that happened in Nazi Germany, which, believe me, is not as irrelevant as you may think. We don't need a little, was it General Runstedt who used to refer to him contemptuously as the little bohemian corporal. We don't need him to have his ideas back. That's Hitler by the way. No, the danger is real. I'm not making this up. So look, coming to the end of this talk, if you just bear with me for a minute or two, I just summarise the main points and maybe bring it to a close here. I, I started with, if you remember, I just mentioned the, the whole Ed Sullivan thing. As I, th- I thought an amusing way of looking at a very, very deep and serious gospel. Okay, Ed Sullivan, who made really an incredible name for himself. I suspect Ed Sullivan will always be remembered. Only this 20 years, major years of television, and he introduced many top acts to the American public at large. He made an incredible name for himself and a living from introducing the acts of others which is interesting. And I'm saying John the Baptist (laughs) made a a crap living (laughs) from doing the same thing, but he introduced the greatest act in all of history. In all of history, the greatest artist has been Jesus Christ, who is the only man in history ever to live a perfect life. Not homo novus, not homo sovieticus, not homo sapiens, but homo perfectus the man, him. The Jews, when they refer to God, some of the devout Jews, they don't like to mention his name, as you know. They'll often just refer to Hashem, the name. That's what they call him, the name, capital N, the name, Hashem, him. That was what John was born for. When Our Lady went to visit Elizabeth, you remember? Elizabeth said to her, I know you're blessed because when you came to me, the child in my womb jumped for joy. They believe that that is a direct reference to David dancing before the Ark of the Covenant as it was carried from Abed-Edom up into Jerusalem. He stripped to the priestly garment, the ephod, and he danced in front of the Ark all the way to Jerusalem. John danced before the, Lord, the Ark because Mary was the Theotokos in Greek. The God vessel, the God bearer, the ark. And he danced before him all of his life. To the extent that people will come to him saying, Are you Moses? Are you Elijah? Are you the one to come? Everyone's saying it's you. And he said, No, it's not me. I'm dancing in front of him. I'm introducing the act, the man, the name, Hashem, in neon lights. If you want to partake of this ministry of John in this Advent season, you must dance in front of them. You must spend time with them. You must have the humility to make a noggins of yourself. As David's wife, Michael, the daughter of Saul, said to him, look at the cut of you, she said, and the age of you, making a fool of yourself in front of everyone. You must dance before the Lord. You must announce him. You're not going to have the strength to do that if you don't spend time with him. Because listen to me, you must tell the truth. We're in a world of lies. And we're broken and sinful people ourselves and in no position to throw stones in glass houses. The only kind of person who can actually start to contribute in this situation is not somebody slinging stones. For that, as Jesus reminded us, belongs to the one who has not sinned themselves. And that, my friend, with great respect, is neither you nor I. The one who will dialogue and this is a dangerous conversation, and you could pay for it dearly, the one who will dialogue with this world needs to be spending time with God. You must somehow come in off the desert with nothing in your hands. You must be authentic and true and live not by lies. And so we are, as usual, desperately bailing out water and the Brendan option. Ship as usual, half banjaxed, sinking, not a bit of land in sight. But then it wouldn't be Catholicism if it weren't a disaster. I wish you a wonderful second Sunday of Advent. I predict that if I haven't ruined your life by now, I will certainly make a right pig's breakfast of it in the next two weeks. So do stick with me. And in the meantime, keep safe, keep well, and do consider doing a little bit of adoration. Spend a bit of time with him. He's a very classy guy. You'll find it rubs off. In the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen.